Russia continues to target Ukraine's peaceful cities as well as its industrial and military infrastructure. Meanwhile, Ukraine's counteroffensive continues with Kyiv attempting to incorporate its partner support into bilateral security agreements. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, an English-language website about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher, journalist and chief editor of Ukraine World. I invite you to the roundup of the key events and trends in and around Ukraine over the past week, delivered by my colleagues Maxim Panchenko and Anastasia Heresimchuk, journalist and analyst at Ukraine World. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs, let me remind you that you can support us at patreon.com slash Ukraine World. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front lines at paypal ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Hello and welcome. My name is Maxim Panchenko. I am joined by my colleague Anastasia Hrasimchuk. We are set to discuss the recent events in and around Ukraine. This time would take a little bit longer period two weeks instead of one week but still there has been a number of developments that have piled up and we're going to discuss those developments in order to uh, to tell you our listeners of this podcast uh, what have been the recent and latest news and how they fit in the political and geopolitical picture around Ukraine. So Nastya, hello, thank you for joining me can you please outline what the specific topics are going to be in our discussions today? Hello, Maxim. Thank you. As usually, we are going to talk about the Russian attacks on Ukrainian peaceful cities and results of these attacks. And we are going to dwell on the events in the front lines. Uh, we are going to talk about Ukrainian counteroffensive. And in this context, we also will pay attention to some changes in Ukraine's tactics, and especially we are going to tell you about the um, sea operations, sea military operations conducted by Ukraine. Uh, we will not omit diplomatic topics as usually. We are going to tell you about the uh, summit which took place in Jeddah, and um, we will tell you what was what it was about and what were the results. And we will not omit from our attention the uh, developments and relations of Ukraine with its partners. So we are going to talk about the uh, military assistance from Western partners to Ukraine and the negotiations Ukraine started with um, with G7 countries about the security guarantees. And we will also remind about the... Uh, danger of Russia, not only for Ukraine, but on, but also for Western countries. And we will tell you about the Wagner's activities in Poland. Yes, indeed, so much to discuss today. But as usual, we will start with uh, what's going on here in Ukraine militarily. And we, as, as is already a notorious tradition, we're going to start with the shellings, with the bombings that Russia is carrying out in Ukraine. And these shellings are effectively both against civilian and infrastructural targets. We have previously discussed in our earlier episodes that uh, Russia has been shelling Ukrainian ports infrastructure in order to deprive Ukraine of the possibilities to export its grain, which is the major 
article in its exports, and that's the major article responsible for the inflow of uh, cash to Ukraine and uh, the most important article in the GDP of the country. However, uh, Russia has uh, gone even further during this period that we're talking about today because Russia has intensified its uh, shellings, its bombings across the entire country to target Ukrainian uh, defense capabilities, defense infrastructure. Uh, first of all, uh, Russia has shelled the motor siege plant. This is one of the Ukrainian giants when it comes to the defense industry. And that giant is responsible for producing parts, equipment for the air forces of Ukraine. Russia seems to have had a very consistent interest in this particular uh, in this particular branch of Ukrainian military infrastructure, in this particular plant, I would say, because earlier uh, during the war, uh, Ukrainian uh, security service even managed to uncover the uh, plot, the mole, so to say, in the ranks of the uh, top leadership of the plant. Evidently, Russia was trying to spy on Ukraine and, on, and to undermine it, to subvert its uh, capabilities in, in the... Uh, air defense capabilities. At the same time, uh, so now Russia basically has tried to directly uh, hit, to directly hit with, mis with missiles uh, the plant of motor siege, uh, and uh, which only proves the significance uh, that Russia for Russia to deprive Ukraine of those capabilities. But uh, also, this has not been the only one, the only development of the kind, because Russia has also intensified its um, uh, shellings of, uh, of the airstrips, of the military airstrips around the country. We remember that the war itself, the full-fledged invasion, started with uh, the first move that Russia made during the 24th of February was to uh, hit uh, a number of critical Ukraine's airstrips in order to deprive Ukraine of a possibility to use its uh, military jets. And uh, Russia so far has been having a particular attention, once again, to one particular airfield in the um, in the Starokostantiniv, uh, which is a small town in the Khmelnytsky Oblast, in the north of the Khmelnytsky Oblast. Uh, reportedly, there are rumors that this is the very airstrip where Ukrainian um, jets ca specifically carrying the British proc procured uh, Storm Shadow uh, missiles are carrying and are based. Uh, so, presumably, Russia wanted to once again to deprive Ukraine of those capabilities. But Ukraine knows better than to be targeted there, and of course, Ukraine has a, a has a, a strategy how to avoid those uh, how to avoid those uh, military hits carried out by Russia, uh, usually when there is an air raid siren, it takes uh, Russian missiles uh, an hour, two hours to reach the airfields or generally any targets in, in Ukraine. And this is more than sufficient for Ukraine to be alerted and to uh, make its uh, jets to take off and to circulate around the country, to spread uh, through the other airfields around the country in order, in an attempt to keep the bigger part of its um, of its uh, jets uh, up and running most literally so uh, 
On the top of that, uh, Russia has reportedly also tried to target an airstrip in uh, the Ivano-Frankivsk region, uh, specifically the one where the pilots meant to be trained later, trained later in the year for the F-16 use. Uh, but uh, reportedly, once again, uh, according to Ukrainian authorities, uh, those hits uh, have been so far futile. Fingers crossed that uh, this keeps uh, keeps being the case in the future. Uh, but still, uh, the the very the sheer attention that Russia is paying to hitting Ukrainian infrastructure, of course, cannot be overestimated. Um, but that's only one side of the matter. That's when it comes to the uh, to the military uh, infrastructure. Uh, my colleague Nastya here also knows that you, uh, that Russia has not uh, restrained itself in its further attempts to commit war crimes in targeting civilian, uh, regular civilian targets as well. Nastya, can, can you please elaborate more on uh, which specific war crimes in this realm Russia has committed in this several couple of weeks uh, so far? Indeed, when we talk about Russian attacks, we shouldn't forget about what nature Russian tools of waging war have. We shouldn't forget that Russia is a terrorist state. So even uh, even though um, Russians um, have this attempt to attack military infrastructure, which can have a certain strategic meaning, uh, they keep shelling peaceful cities and civilians and um, civilian infrastructure. And uh, it happens every day. Uh, every Ukrainian city is under the threat every night and every day. And uh, peaceful citizens don't know from where to expect uh, the next attacks. And several blatant acts of violence happened uh, for the last two weeks. And one of them happened at Pokrovsk, which uh, is located in Donetsk Oblast. So on the 7th of August, Russians attacked uh, the city, the town, uh, with missiles. And um, two residential buildings were severely damaged uh, alongside with other uh, other buildings such as restaurants, shops, etc. Uh, so, w- what was the most awful about this attack? That after the first uh, the first series of attacks, uh, when uh, the fire started and the emergency service uh, officers came to the place to help people, uh, Russians, knowing that, launched another uh, missile. So it hit the um, emergency service uh, officers as well. So as a result, seven people were killed by Russian missiles and at least 88 were wounded. The last night was also a difficult one and Odessa and Odessa region was again under Russian attack. Uh, Russians fired uh, 15 drones and uh, six cruise missiles uh, caliber uh, on, at the city. Uh, luckily, Ukrainian air defense managed to shoot all of them, but still there were debris of missiles which caused heavy, heavy damage uh, to a number of buildings in the city. So according to the local authorities, more than 200 buildings were uh, severe, severely or slightly damaged, uh, including seven educational establishments, uh, architectural sites, residential buildings, and uh, one of the biggest supermarkets in the city with a huge 
uh, territory, which is close to, which is located close to the city center, it was completely destroyed. So we shouldn't forget about the ugly face of Russian aggression and the absence of any logic. So these are just attempts to terrorize Ukrainian population and exhaust Ukrainian people and kill as much people as possible. Yes, indeed. Uh, It seems like there is nothing new under the sun and Russia does not change its tactics. And it's imperative that the world continues knowing about it and listening to, to the information about this still being carried on. Uh, because uh, that's imperative for Russia to be eventually in the future be held responsible for what it's doing. Moving on, let us switch to the topic of what is happening in the front lines as Ukrainian counteroffensive is uh, ongoing. According to the information, uh, to the estimates uh, provided, uh, I think I found that in the New York Times uh, material a couple of days back, uh, Ukrainian uh, troops have managed since the start of the counteroffensive to move as deep as 16 to 19 kilometers uh, deep into the Russian defense uh, in the southern parts of Ukraine, particularly uh, along the front line in the southern parts. And uh, while some may think that this is not enough uh, with the, coupled with the length of how long the counteroffensive has been going, uh, still we need to understand that uh, these up to 20 kilometers have been riddled with uh, with the mines, sometimes as many as three to four to five mines, reportedly for a single square meter. And uh, that, of course, was a big challenge for, for Ukraine. According to Ukrainian officials, um, which I frankly do not know whether they are objective or not, but there are uh, Ukrainian officials who say that there are already parts of the first line of defense of Russians that has already been breached by Ukrainians and that Ukrainians have managed to, in those specific parts of the front line, to come to the uh, second line of defense uh, of Russia. Uh, Also, reportedly, uh, Ukrainian um, military experts not affiliated with, uh, particularly affiliated with with the government, say that uh, Russia has already been forced to employ its not only operational but also strategic reserves in the south because of how dire the situation is for them. Once again, I can neither confirm nor deny it, but uh, I think that could be the case because of how long Ukraine has been trying to exhaust Russian troops there. And also, it is vital to mention here that Ukraine has continued its uh, attempts to isolate the southern Uh, theater of warfare, uh, in addition to the continued shellings uh, on the part of Ukraine and diversions uh, on the Crimean bridge that have already significantly lowered the possibilities, the the capabilities of the bridge for them to be used by by Russia for transportation of weaponry through the bridge through Crimea to the southern uh, front lines. Ukraine also has uh, targeted several and, and successfully hit several of the uh, several of the arteries that connect the Crimean Peninsula uh, with the uh, mainland Ukraine because there are several bridges that go uh, near the Arabatska Strilka near the Chonhar. If you look at the map, those are the territories that are very much very riddled with. Uh, uh, straits 
uh, between Crimea and mainland Ukraine. So there are three to four bridges that can be used and Ukraine have targeted, successfully targeted them with uh, long-range missiles. Uh, so that, of course, is contributes to the isolation of, the, uh, of that part of the occupied territories. Uh, presumably, this will help Ukraine in advancing there uh, up until the end of this year. And of course, there are developments along the Dnipro River because Ukrainians have been reported to successfully uh, increase the number of the footholds that Ukrainian troops have on the still occupied left bank of the Dnipro River that is so far uh, controlled entirely by uh, by the uh, Russian forces when it comes to the Kherson Oblast specifically. But once again, there previously have been developments when Ukrainians took a, 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 created a foothold uh, right next to the Antonivsky Bridge. Now there is a similar foothold reportedly uh, near the um, town of the Kozachi. Uh, maybe Nasty will help me out here because I don't remember exactly the, na- the name. Kozachi Lopany, I think. And uh, that's that is a good tendency because that reportedly helps Ukraine to uh, extend the gray zone to the left bank of the Dnipro River and thus to be able to push away the artillery that Russians uh, have in this area because if that artillery is pushed back, uh, Ukrainian uh, forces will be able to come to the left bank of the Dnipro River in bigger quantities. So this is kind of a snowball situation we're trying to uh, put our whole to, to put our uh, leg in the uh, in the you know door being ajar and then we're trying to you know to expand that window of opportunities for Ukrainian troops so of course we'll follow any further developments that are going to be uh, to be here uh, now we're going to switch to a very, I would say, to an adjacent topic to what's going on with Ukrainian strategy in the seas, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, Ukraine's attacks on the Russian vessels, because this is a, a major part in what I have just been discussing when it comes to the counteroffensive, and Nasta has more information on what specifically Ukraine has managed to do here so far in the last couple of weeks. The last couple of weeks brought us several good news from the seas and the Ukrainian military um, brought us this news. Uh, so well, let's start with what's happened and then we will try to explain why and for what reasons. So after Russia attacked Ukrainian port facilities, Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian leadership, including uh, President Zelensky and uh other officials, uh, they warned uh, Russians that Ukraine will protect its sovereignty, its sovereign interests, and if Russia uses its fleet to attack Ukraine, Ukraine will um, take measures and will attack in in response. And also there was this uh, warning that Ukraine will consider any vessels that are directed at Russian ports as a potential carriers of weapons. So um, these were not only statements or words and uh, Ukrainian military were fulfilling what was said. So on the 4th of August, uh, Ukraine attacked Russian landing ship in Novorossiysk 
And uh, it is very important to uh, explain what ship it was. So this ship was um, uh, was supposed to be used for um, land operations, for assault operations uh, by approaching the shores of Ukraine. Uh, so uh, this ship got a damage that makes it impossible to uh, further use it. And the next day, uh, again, Ukrainian armed forces also attacked the oil tanker, which uh, call, which is called SIG, uh, and uh, the damage was again so heavy. And um, this ship is very notorious one. Since 2019, it's, uh, it's been under the U.S. sanctions because it was used to export uh, oil, Russian oil, to Syria. And now Russians used this ship uh, on the contrary, to uh, bring fuel that uh, was used by Russian army. Uh, so Russian fleets cannot use these both uh, vessels anymore. Uh, why it is important? Here we see that um, Ukraine having uh, not having uh, the um, compatible amount of weaponry as Russians and compatible amount of personnel changes its tactics, uh, trying to cut the possibilities for Russian army to uh, have vital supplies, such as fuel, for example. And Ukraine is trying to cut the logistic uh, ways uh, that provide Russian army with um, possibility to fight. So um, what was used uh, for these attacks is also very important. Allegedly, uh, the sea drones produced by Ukraine were used in these successful attacks, uh, which tells so much about the developments in uh, Ukrainian technology right now, because these, uh, these drones can carry a big amount of uh, blast, uh, and uh, can cause a heavy damage to Russian fleet. And we also know that now Ukrainians are developing underwater drones. There are not so many details about it, but it will also be a huge uh, asset to sea capabilities of Ukrainians. Yes, indeed. And uh, this is... Uh... This indeed is how it needs to be perceived in a bigger picture. It's not just about several warships of Russia having been hit, even though that also is very important uh, for tactical reasons. But uh, a bigger picture here is that, uh, of course, nobody's telling too much information because Ukrainian authorities are not interested in that. But it seems like Ukraine indeed has several parallel developments on sev of several different types of drones. And uh, I think it is even safe, more or less, to make an assumption that the blow on the Crimean bridge uh, around a month or, a mo or six weeks ago uh, was inflicted uh, by one of Ukrainian uh, sea drones. Because back then, we remember that there was footage that uh, the bridge was attacked from the, uh, from the south and that uh, there were debris uh, after the explosion that uh, were very similar like to a sea scooter or to a drone, and they are fairly alike. So uh, I think that this indeed means, as Nasta has uh, implied, that... Uh, there are basically no more safe places for for Russian fleet in uh, um, in uh, in the Black Sea, and this also contributes to the understanding that Ukraine has not wasted time in terms of 
uh, its military, its own military production during the 16 month of war, even though uh, the bigger emphasis has been on the imports of the, of the weapons from the Western states. Ukraine has managed to create an entire array of uh, uh, of producers of drones and then of uh, and now of producers of sea drones and I, I am sure that this is not the only thing we're talking about here it's just that we cannot know about that for obvious reasons so that of course is a very inspiring development and uh, we'll try to keep an eye on it as long as the information is available and our next topic here is going uh, to be switching to the diplomatic front from the front lines and we're going to discuss, I think, one of the biggest uh, things um, that have happened during the last two weeks when it comes to Ukraine's diplomatic efforts around the peace settlement in uh, Ukraine. Uh, I am basically talking about the meeting of political advisors and foreign ministry representatives of around 40 countries in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, uh, where the peace uh, formula by, of President Zelensky was discussed. Nastya, can you please tell us uh, and our listeners why is this uh, meeting was so important and so notice- noticeable? Because it was not even the first meeting in this format. We had one in Copenhagen, uh, I think, a month or two months back. So what what makes it so special? The summit, this meeting was special indeed, and even though it's not that obvious that it was special, because uh, we know that there was no diplomatic breakthrough and there was no um, tangible agreements or results that uh, we can say as um, the way for peace in Ukraine and the way to get rid of Russia from Ukrainian territories, etc., so we haven't seen this breakthrough, but why this summit uh, or this meeting is, if we can say so, is so important. So first of all, we should pay attention to the countries, the representatives of which we saw at this summit. Um, Maxim reminded us about the previous meeting at the same format in Copenhagen. This one in Jeddah, we should notice that um, it's gathered three times more representatives of countries than the previous one. And among these representatives were ones from China and India. And China is extremely important here because it's the first time Chinese representative took part in a meeting in an event like that. Because previously China refused to take part in any uh, summit, in any uh, similar meeting the topic of which was the discussion of peace in Ukraine. So uh, why it's a breakthrough of a certain kind and uh, some American representatives and Ukraine's uh, foreign minister told that exactly the participation of China here was this diplomatic breakthrough. Because uh, China shows that it, it is a player it is a serious player in this geopolitical game and China is ready to discuss, China is ready to talk about the terms uh, which are acceptable for Ukraine, uh, terms of peace which are acceptable to Ukraine. According to some sources, uh, according to the Western media, there was no uh, like 
complete uh, common ground or there was no consensus between the participants and China was still insisting on on its peace plan, which it, it's, it proposed some time ago. But still, uh, this summit was an opportunity for different sides, from representatives of Western countries, for Ukraine, for representatives of Asia, Latin America, to talk about it face to face, to prove the uh, to show the arguments, and for Ukraine it was the um, stage, the opportunity to explain uh, why uh, why uh, we cannot uh, launch any peace negotiations before Russian troops are with, with, withdrew from Ukrainian territories. At the same time, what was also important about this summit that representatives of states didn't put any pressure on each other. So they were, uh, no one was trying to force anyone to take certain conditions. So the sides were listening to each other. Another aspect here is that uh, the participation of all the countries from BRICS group, except for Russia, means that Russia is getting uh, gradually isolated. Here we talk about not only about China, but about Brazil and India. Uh, and India. Um, regarding Brazil and Brazilian position, of course, it, it is still uh, ambiguous and uh, the representative of Brazil was uh, talking about the importance of Russia, Russian presence at such events, but still, the very fact that the representatives of these states uh, took the invitation, accepted the invitation, and took part in these negotiations without Russia tells that Russian voice is getting less and less important, and we can say the world is getting wider uh, like we can see a uh, more global picture here. It's not only about Western countries. It's also about the South uh, and that our states are trying to find this uh, peace formula for Ukraine. And uh, I think let's also remind the whole mechanism of how this Ukrainian peace formula works. So uh, the whole mechanism uh envisions three stages. The first stage, which has already passed, was the meeting uh, of Ukrainian officials with ambassadors of the states who agreed to take part in this initiative and who uh, supported Ukraine's peace formula. The next stage, this meeting was part of this stage, was about the meeting, a meeting of uh, representatives of ministries of foreign affairs and national security advisors. Uh, and uh, during this meeting, some mechanisms to implement the peace formula uh, should have been discussed. And uh, actually, regarding the results of this meeting, we, we do not know many details. They are still uncovered. Uh, but what is important that uh, the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine is uh, the thing which cannot be changed and all the participants agreed to it. So it is consensus about this exact point. And the next stage uh, should be a global summit with the participation of leaders of all the states uh, which support this formula and Ukrainian authorities are expecting to conduct, to help this summit by the end of this year. Yes, indeed. But also in between there is a reportedly going to be another meeting or can be another meeting in a similar uh, format as it has happened already uh, in India during the uh, September summit of the G20. Uh, 
So, of course, we'll keep uh, our eyes on the ball and we'll try to cover it too, uh, in case indeed such meeting happens in the wings of the G20 summit. Uh, moving on to some other topics in the international arena, uh, we would uh, like also to briefly discuss the issues around the um, procurement of Western weapons to Ukraine, because there are many, uh, many items on the pending agenda uh, as of now. For instance, there are uh, the there are talks about whether Germany is going to hand over the its Taurus missiles. It would be a, uh, an analog of the missiles that Ukraine has already from France and from um, from Great Britain, like the Storm Shadow ones. But uh, indeed, the process is uh, taking quite long. And uh, this also can be said about the unfortunate news, if they are true, uh, that uh, Ukrainian pilots may finish uh, their training for, F- for the F-16 uh, use uh, as late as even next summer, because I think I came across such information in the media, in Western media, in the last week or two. And uh, this is, let's keep in mind against this backdrop, that uh, Ukrainian pilots are already going to uh, start their training already this month. So we're taking, we're talking about an entire year of, of training. And I should not even mention how long this uh, process was being agreed for month. And uh, in our point of view, in point of view of all Ukrainians, this was not that necessary to prolong to prolong it that lo- that much. But still, uh, all these news, uh, in case this indeed is uh, is true, uh, this is quite disturbing because this means that uh, the world is basically okay with the Ukrainian Russian Ukrainian war protecting that far. Because we understand that the war is not going to be over just the second that uh, the F-16s with Ukrainian pilots in it uh, appear in Ukrainian sky. And if the start of the story is going to be in the summer of the next year, it uh, well, it points out to the fact that we're going to have dark times and heavy times ahead of us. Uh, so I guess my point here being that, uh, my call on any listeners here being that uh, everybody in his and in her own place should urge uh, Western leaders um, in order to accelerate their support, their help to Ukraine as as much as possible. Because at the end of the day, we understand that, uh, and we need to remember that the spillover effect from the modern warfare is very tangible across the world. And the longer Ukrainian Russian Ukrainian war protect protracts the longer the impacts, the economical, the financial impacts all over the world, in the West particularly, uh, is going are going to be tangible too. So let's work on the uh, swifter uh, delivery of arms and, and support together. And uh, also the next topic uh, that I would like to briefly dwell upon is the uh, G7 declaration uh, of the concluded during the Vilnius uh, summit of NATO uh, some time ago. We remember that there was a framework agreement between the uh, G7 members on the long-term support of the on the framework of the long-term support of Ukraine in this Russian-Ukrainian war, and now Ukraine is trying to. Uh, switch to the next step of this process because that framework provided just for that, just for the framework of how this long-term support would be provided. And now there are bilateral agreements 
that need to be concluded between Ukraine and each of those countries uh, in order for uh, the specific mechanisms of such security guarantees to be given to Ukraine. Ukraine has already started reportedly the negotiations uh, with uh, several such countries, the United States and the United Kingdom. I think I also met uh, some, uh, came across some news uh, about the similar pro- uh, process being launched with Greece. So, but uh, which is a good thing, which is a good development because in Vilnius, uh, it still was a declaration. It was a political declaration and now we're coming to to the discussion of bilateral agreements that are going to be legally binding. So that's the good thing. The tricky thing here is that, and this is the difference uh, about how this is viewed in Ukraine, these agreements, potential agreements are viewed in Ukraine and by, West, by our Western partners. Um, in Ukraine, we talk about these bilateral agreements as the agreements about the security guarantees which tricks Ukrainians, due to the specificities of translation, uh, into understanding that this is going to work almost, or maybe literally, as the Article 5 of the NATO uh, of the NATO agreement. And at the same time, as far as uh, we can tell, Western countries are perceiving this uh, quite differently. That means that when there is another round of Russian aggression against Ukraine, there is going to be a stable mechanism of the Western support to Ukraine, that the procurement of arms that we already are seeing uh, during this uh, almost uh, 16-17 month, uh, that they are going to be enshrined uh, legally, which means that, first of all, the process is going to be automatic, because this time there had to be, after the launch of the full-scale invasion, there had to be like diplomatic talks with uh, each separate country on each separate delivery. And now it has contributed to a big amount of weapons delivered, but there was was so much work uh, done for that. Now it's going to be automated. The very fact of aggression against Ukraine is going to translate into that um, uh, support being delivered to Ukraine. And also... Uh, it is uh, th- these bilateral agreements, this formalization of support is going to contribute to the process being apolitical. The process is not going to be, in case the, the bilateral agreements are going to be concluded, of course, uh, the process is going to be, uh, uh, well, not depend on the political realities in those specific countries. For instance, if you're talking about the US, we are not going to have to worry anymore about uh, whether these are Republicans or Democrats driving the process and uh, in that sense, how higher or lower the probabilities are that uh, those weapons would be delivered to Ukraine. So this is quite an understanding, quite an, an interesting thing that needs to be understood about the conclusion of this bilateral agreements. But in the meantime, uh, the information is scarce on the is scarce on the dynamics of that conclusion. There are only several statements by Ukrainian leadership, uh, particularly by Andriy Yermak, I believe. Uh, the head of the president's office, who said that the the agreements are already in the works, but nothing more available for now. So, of course, we are going to try and follow the topic as well. And the last topic we're going to talk about today is uh, also the one demonstrating that spillover effect I mentioned earlier uh, about how the uh, Wagner Group and developments around the Wagner Group and their impact on the trans-border impact 
uh, is going to become a threat, not just to Ukraine or to Belarus, where the Wagner Group is now stationed, but also to other European countries. And I believe the, it's where Nastya also has something to say. We've, we've just, today we've received quite an alarming news uh, from Poland, uh, which indicates, which shows once again that Russian aggression against Ukraine is not only about Ukraine. It's not only the conflict between just two states. It's about the war against democracy, the war against liberal values, and the world, uh, the war against the whole civilized world. What I'm talking about. Today, Polish security service have arrested two uh, Russians, two Russian men, Uh, and they are suspects in espionage. So what were they doing? Actually, uh, they were spreading propagandist information, propagandist, propagandist materials about uh, Wagner pri private military campaign in Warsaw and Krakow. Why, why, this, why is this important? It's not the first case when such things uh, happen in, in Poland. Some time ago, Uh, the leaflets uh, with uh, calls to join the Wagner Group were found in uh, several cities in, in Poland as well. And we also know that on the 29th of July, the group of uh, more than 100 uh, Wagner mercenaries moved towards Suval Corridor, which is this point at the border between Belarus, Poland and uh, Baltic states. So we understand that it was the provocation, but at the same time, it was the blatant act of demonstration that things can go further and no one can restrict Russia in its actions. So such uh, small but important events show that Russia can, uh, can put its feet not only uh, on Ukrainian territory, but they could... Um, use any opportunity to destabilize situation in Western countries as well. That's why it's very important not to forget that there is no uh, such a thing as someone else's war. This war is happening in the heart of Europe, and this is war of values. It's not only the war uh, for gaining territories. It's genocidal war, it's war against Ukrainians, it's war to destroy Ukrainians, but at the same time, it's war to dismantle the liberal order and to destroy all the liberal values. And we should remember about that. Yes, indeed. Very important. And uh, we will try to contribute to, to the world remembering how important uh, that is and how vulnerable, maybe unexpectedly, Uh, even uh, strong countries are when it comes to such hybrid influences as the one um, as the one exerted by the Wagner group. Uh, thank you, dear listeners, very much for having uh, been with us today. Let me remind you that this was the podcast Explaining Ukraine, our weekly podcast in which we dwell on the key events of the week. Today it was two weeks after a brief pause we made. Uh, my name is Maxim Panchenko. I'm analyst and journalist at uh, Ukraine World, and I was joined by my colleague Anastasia Herasimchuk, who equally is an analyst and journalist here. 
uh, Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. And please let me remind you that you can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. And also you can support our volunteer trips to the front lines at paypal ukraine.resisting at gmail.com. Thank you and we'll meet you in our next episodes.